With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 146 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you for taking the time to join me today and I'm sorry I'm a few hours late. When you have finished this episode, please head over to my website at uktruecrime.com where you will see my recent Q&A session with Mike from the excellent Murder Mile Tours and Podcast. If you don't listen to him already, please do. There you will find out why I would rather amputate a leg than hear anything about Jack the Ripper. Come on, you agree, don't you? I'd even rather listen to the Kings of Boredom play. There's loads for true crime fans at uktruecrime.com. Maybe I exaggerate a touch, but there's certainly an interesting article from new indie author David Fuentes about producing his first novel, Follow the Money. In today's show, we head to West London and look at the murky worlds of professional sport. The days when the chairman of the local football club was a local businessman who had done well are long gone. And today we take a look at a very strange incident, different from many of the violent crimes we usually examine on this podcast. Well, different and yet the same, but you'll see what I mean as we progress. I'm delighted that this week's show is sponsored by HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the UK's leading recipe box service, delivering fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and step-by-step recipes to your door. It's the easy, convenient way to cook delicious dinners from scratch every time. Choose your favourites from 19 recipes every week, including rapid recipes, ready in 20 minutes or less, family favourites, British and world cuisine, and even a balanced lower calorie range. And because all their fresh ingredients come direct from their suppliers, pre-portioned for you, there's no food waste. I love the HelloFresh vegetarian dishes, which are just so good. They work well for me, as with your favourite podcasts to write each week, I can save time with no meal planning, no shopping, and I know that my wife and children will love the food I make. Trust me, it isn't always the case. It also means that by choosing the meals I know we will all enjoy, the whole family can eat the same fresh food together. So enjoy delicious moments with HelloFresh. Head to hellofresh.co.uk, choose a box, a delivery slot, and add your favourite recipes. Discover the easy way to delicious dinners from scratch. And HelloFresh are offering listeners to this podcast £60 off four boxes. Visit www.hellofresh.co.uk and enter the discount code TRUECRIME at the checkout to enjoy delicious dinners without the drama. Yup, that's £60 off four boxes. Just head to www.hellofresh.co.uk and enter the code TRUECRIME at the checkout to enjoy delicious dinners without the drama. A huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon but especially this week's new members of this exclusive club. That's Ami Amri, Karen Parker, Catherine Deacon, John Davidson and Tanya Wesley. I'm so, so grateful for your support, which enables me to keep producing this free weekly content. Thank you so much. 
So let's quickly set some context by taking a look at the music we were listening to, or not, when the events we discussed today, August 2005, took place. Top of the UK music charts was friend of the show and king of the Twitter put-downs, James Blunt, with You're Beautiful, ensuring that Daniel Powter had a bad day at number two. See what I did there? <laughs> in the US, Mariah Carey topped the chart with We Belong Together. And in Australia, Missy Higgins with The Sound of White was the best-selling album of the year. The Buble is getting a rare mention outside December as his album, It's Time, was the third best-selling album of the year. Remember, the Buble is for life, not just for Christmas. Yeah, another example of keeping this show relevant for the kids by quoting adverts from maybe 25 years ago. Look it up. In the news this month, chemical-loving Justin Gatlin won the sprint double at the World Athletics Championship in Helsinki. Joyful. Do you remember his gold at the World Athletics Championships in 2017 when Usain Bolt finished third? Has there ever been a more unpopular winner? West Caribbean Airways Flight 708 crashed this month in Venezuela, killing all 160 aboard. And in the US, Hurricane Katrina made landfall, devastating much of the US Gulf Coast from Louisiana to the Florida Panhandle, killing more than 1,830 people and causing over $115 billion in damage. In the UK, this was the month that two prominent Labour politicians, Robin Cook and Mo Molum, both died. So on to today's story. The football club Queen's Park Rangers, or QPR as they are known, is based in White City, West London, and is one of my favourite grounds to visit, despite the fact that the mighty Leeds United always seem to struggle there. It's a small traditional stadium, where the supporters are very close to the pitch, generating a really good atmosphere. QPR made the national news on the 18th of May 2006 when youth player, 15-year-old Kyan Prince was murdered when bravely intervening to stop another boy being bullied. And the following year, in August 2007, when promising first-team player, 19-year-old Ray Jones, was killed in a car crash along with two of his friends, when he was involved in a head-on collision with a bus in East Ham. On the pitch, QPR haven't had much success as a club, winning the League Cup in 1967 and losing in the final of the FA Cup in 1982 to Tottenham, when they were managed by probably their most successful manager, publicity-shy Terry Venables. As football has evolved into a global business, QPR has been viewed by many wealthy business people as a potential very good investment due to its location. Just take a look at what has happened to neighbour Chelsea just down the road. And by the time Gianni Palladini became the principal shareholder in 2003, the club was in big trouble. Back in 1996, music businessman Chris Wright had taken over the club full of great intentions. But within five years, as the club struggled with huge debts, he had to put the club into administration. As ever in the murky world of football finance, it's hard to know the exact details of what happened next. But it was a year later, when the club left this period of administration, thanks to a loan of £10 million from the ABC Corporation, which was based in Panama. But this injection of cash didn't seem to be able to do the job properly. And by 2003, QPR were again desperate for money. 
As we know now from more recent events, interest from a company based in Panama can be an interesting strategy if you pursue it. And the media was soon reporting that the interest on the loan was around £1 million a year. Speaking at the time, one QPR fan told the BBC News website, This club has never even made a profit of £1 million, so I don't know where the money is coming from to pay the interest. And this view was remarkably close to the truth, with it being rumoured that when QPR came out of administration, their debts were double what they were when the club entered administration. So when a man named Gianni Palladini made contact with the club and said he wanted to invest, the board were prepared to listen. Frankly, they had no choice. But they were very wary, as on the surface it was a strange move for Gianni, who had no connection or affinity with QPR. So let's take a moment to find out some more about him and what had brought him to this position. Gianni was born in the stunning city of Naples, Italy, in 1945. As a young, talented footballer, he appeared to have a really positive future in front of him in the game. Injuries struck, and at just 23, his professional career was over without ever playing a game for his home club. In the late 1960s, Gianni relocated to England and located himself in Solihull in the Midlands with his English wife Olga, with whom he had two children, Stephen and Kate. Charming, persuasive and hard-working, Gianni worked hard to build a successful property and nightclub business. But as you know, nightclubs are notoriously difficult to make money from, and his property business was damaged by the variations in the property cycle. But at this time, the money in football, especially English football, was starting to become significant. And Gianni moved into the business firstly as an interpreter, progressing to be a football agent, as many top quality Italian players moved to England, which compared to the Italian league, was relatively awash with cash. If you aren't really into football, you may not be aware of just how wealthy top football agents are from leeching money, sorry, negotiating deals, with commissions of over £1 million not uncommon on just one deal and their reputations are up there with the very worst sharks, and I'd even go as far as to say estate agents. His personal network was good, and Gianni signed up some very successful players, including Salvatore Toto Cilacci, the top goalscorer in the 1990 World Cup, won by host Italy, as well as strikers Benito Caboni and Febriazzo Ravinelli who both moved to the UK on big contracts. But after making a sizeable sum from these deals, Gianni became a little bit fed up with the attitude towards agents and started to look at other ways of becoming a part of what is laughingly called by some people the football family. The same people who call the BBC Auntie Beeb, I guess. Who are these people? I don't know them. But I digress. Living in the Midlands, Gianni inquired about investing in Birmingham City, but when that didn't happen, he headed a consortium including the player Ravinelli looking to buy Derby County. That didn't work out either, and he turned his attention to Stoke-based Port Vale, but this also fell through. Then hearing about the financial issues at QPR, he turned his interest to the London club, and this time was successful in making an investment. In June 2003, QPR announced that Gianni's company, Moorbound Limited, 
have bought 22% of the club's shares, giving the club a desperately required influx of cash of around £650,000. Gianni was still registered as a football agent, so wasn't able to formally join the board of the club, but the deal saw his associate, Azim Malik, do so. With Gianni, it wasn't just the money, although this was of course vital for QPR. Gianni was well connected, and he told the board that his company, Morebound, was the vehicle for another party with far more cash. And more than that, he promised to bring some of the high-profile Italian players to the club, who in normal circumstances wouldn't have even considered making that move. The name Benito Carboni, at the time of a successful striker, was immediately put out there as an example of just who Gianni could deliver from his network. Gianni's wider family couldn't understand what he was doing investing in this company with a poor team and a desperate financial record, especially as he had no connection to London, let alone QPR. When quizzed about this, Gianni turned on the charm or the sleaze, depending on your view, saying, you don't have to know a woman for 40 years before you take her to bed. Quite. And in reality, except for the potential we spoke about earlier of a club in central London, the club still also owned the freehold of the stadium at Loftus Road. So to Gianni, an investment of £650,000 or so seemed to offer the possibility of a very good return going forward. But although the local papers and QPR forums buzzed with the news of the club's Italian saviour, Gianni was no Roman Abramovich and had even remortgaged one of his homes to fund the shares purchase. It didn't take long for other members of the board to be frustrated when the promised further investment didn't materialise and the high-profile Italian players didn't join the club. The team continued to struggle on the pitch and tensions in the boardroom began to rise. On the 13th of August 2005, QPR were playing at home to Sheffield United and a crowd of 14,000 filled the stadium. As usual, Gianni arrived at the ground at 2pm with his son, daughter and today also with his grandson, Gianluca. It was a really special day as Gianluca was due to be the team's mascot and the family were excited and really looking forward to enjoying the day. David Morris, who owned 2% of the club, was already there, and when Gianni arrived, he pulled him to one side and asked if he could have a word. The two headed up to the chairman's suite. But it was there, according to Gianni, that the usual convivial mood changed, and he found himself surrounded by an unknown group of burly heavies who intimidated him. Gianni, who wasn't a bigger man physically, was scared for his life, especially when one of the gang placed a gun against his head and said, Sign, sign the paper, we'll kill you. On the table, there were a number of legal documents relating to his investment in QPR, and under duress he was forced to sign these papers. On the table, there were a number of legal documents relating to his investment in QPR, and under duress he was forced to sign these papers handing over his stake in the club, which was now worth 14.7%. Gianni, under pressure, did as he was asked, feeling that he'd no other option and terrified at this situation he'd unexpectedly found himself. When it was over, he rushed downstairs to the director's lounge to tell his family just what had happened. They called the police and armed officers were quickly at the scene. 
Meanwhile, the game had kicked off and the other 14,000 people at the stadium were completely unaware of the drama taking place. David Morris, the director who had lured Gianni to the chairman's office, and others in his group were arrested and taken away for questioning, and Gianni was questioned at the ground. It was slightly bizarre as at one stage Gianni, in the middle of providing a formal statement, on hearing a roar from the crowd, stopped talking mid-sentence whilst he rushed to the director's box to celebrate a goal for QPR. Police thoroughly searched for the documents that Gianni had claimed he'd been made to sign, but they didn't find any of them, only a scrunched up piece of paper in Gianni's handwriting. But detectives believed Gianni's account of what had happened, and they rounded up a number of men connected to Morris, with several charged with conspiracy to commit blackmail, false imprisonment and possession of a firearm. As detectives carried out their investigation, they believed that Gianni had been telling the truth and that a gang had been hired by a man called Andy Baker to intimidate Gianni. Remember that name, Andy Baker, as he is such an interesting character with his work for the Adams crime family in London and potential involvement, okay, his definite involvement in a number of violent crimes that the whole of next week's episode is dedicated to his life and crimes. Trust me, you won't want to miss it. Andy Baker told detectives that it was utter nonsense that he was responsible for trying to intimidate Gianni. He said he had no idea where that idea had come from. He'd been a guest of David Morris's brother Dan at the game, as with his track record in security, he was the sort of guy who many had regretted messing with when he worked the doors of venues and he was hoping to make a pitch for the club's stewarding contract, which could have been worth a lot of money to him, and it was shortly up for renewal. He'd come along to network and influence nothing more sinister. When he was first arrested, £7,000 in cash was found by police in the pocket of his hooded top. He denied that this was payment for intimidating Gianni, saying that in his business, cash was still important and that some of it was to pay their wages of some of his employees, and the rest was, quote, to grease some wheels at QPR to help us get the stewarding contract, end quote. Like me, surely you are shocked to hear that bribes still can help gain contracts. Who would ever have thought that many seemingly wealthy people are willing to accept cash to help deals? What is a little shocking is the figure was only 7k, but maybe this was in fact for something else. Who knows, what do you think? At the trial, the QC for Gianni said, This was no classic boardroom struggle at a football club, of the type with which you might be familiar from the business papers or sports newspapers. A gun was produced and possibly another held to the head of Gianni. At the dictation of Mr Morris, a co-director, he was forced to write out a letter of resignation and to sign two documents. To ensure he did so, he was intimidated by the presence of hired muscle provided by Andy Baker. The court was told how when Gianni arrived in the chairman's office, Andy Baker actually punched Gianni in the stomach and said that the men were QPR fans and that what they were doing was the best for the club. A gun was produced whether real or imitation we cannot say, said the QC. It was pointed at Gianni Palladini before being placed on the table in front of him. From the rear he could feel something being pushed at the back of his head. 
He was never in a position to see if it was a real gun or not, but understandably, he feared that it was. It was against this scene that Gianni Palladini was forced to write his letter of resignation. He was shouted at, slapped and punched by the group until he complied. He'd no means of escape and terrified for his safety did as he was told. Mr Morris was said to have shouted at him, sign there, sign now, whilst one of the gang said, let's kill him now. The whole trial was, when you look back at the transcripts, a bizarre affair all round and a pretty sad indictment on how QPR was being run. At one stage, Gianni was asked by David Morris's barrister, did you ever say to manager Ian Holloway that you would kill him? Gianni said, in a funny way, yes, but it didn't mean anything at all. And at the trial, the financial position of Gianni was laid bare. He made it clear he looked at investing in Northampton, Rotherham, Derby, Burnley and Port Vale, before finally deciding to make his investment in QPR. Gianni freely told the court that this investment had left him in financial dire straits in the summer of 2005, saying, yes, this is true, because I got involved with QPR. Everything I had was spent on QPR. And at the end of this most strange of trials, the jury found Andy Baker, David Morris, and all the other men who had stood in the dock not guilty of all charges. The solicitor representing Andy Baker said afterwards outside Blackfriars Crown Court, he feels absolutely fantastic, a great sense of relief. It has been utterly shocking for him. He's been trying to conduct his business and has had time on remand. He's had to hand himself in very early in the morning and spend time in the cells each day. And he is just relieved at long last, justice has been done. Tracy Stent, a coordinator at the QPR First Supporters Trust said, It has been a traumatic time for the club and things have come out during the course of the trial, which have been quite extraordinary really, regarding what goes on behind the scenes at a football club in relation to various arguments that were going on. From a fan's perspective, we just need to learn from the experience and move on. A QPR official spokesman said the club would not comment. And so what happened after the acquittals at the trial? As I said earlier, next week we will be returning in full to the colourful story of the man who was alleged to be running the gang intimidating Gianni, Andy Baker, who walked from the court a free man. But for now, let's look at what happened next to Gianni. Not wanting to be slated on every social media channel, let me be clear here that the following information leans heavily on an article from Wikipedia. Soon after the alleged incident, Palladini, backed by several friends and fellow investors, including Brazilian World Cup winner Dunga and two Monaco-based companies, ousted the QPR chairman Bill Power in a boardroom coupe. The press were meanwhile full of allegations that Gianni was using QPR to line the pockets of various agent friends with deals that the club could not afford. I know, a football agent being greedy. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Typical is a suggestion that the acquisition of player Mark Nygaard on a free transfer from Brescia Calcio resulted in a 60000 payment to agent Brian Hassel. In February 2006, QPR's manager Ian Holloway was placed on gardening leave after a series of rows with Gianni, allegedly over Holloway's interest in other managerial roles. And Gianni retained his position as chairman of QPR despite the investment of significant new shareholders 
in the latter half of 2007, and the reorganisation of the club's directors, which among other changes, included the son-in-law of billionaire Lashkmi Mittal taking a place on the board. But with the pretty rubbish results on the pitch continuing, Gianni was removed as chairman on the 18th of August 2011, after a takeover by Asian business tycoon Tony Fernandez, and he became a consultant for the club. He finally quit his involvement at Queen's Park Rangers on the 16th of November 2011. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Odd, huh? Is this the first episode of the UK True Crime podcast containing no crime? The many cues of forcing Gianni to relinquish his stake in the club were found not guilty. So, not guilty they must have been. But in that case, why had Gianni claimed what he claimed? And why was he not charged with wasting police time or other offences when the men were found not guilty? I find it all very strange and fascinating, which is why I covered this case today, which is very different to our normal stories. Someone had to be lying, at least one person, but who and why? I think it's fair to say that like so many dealings behind the door of the boardrooms of football clubs where big money has changed everything, we will never know the full story. I'd really like to, wouldn't you? Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK true crime, please pop over to the Facebook group. We are almost at 3,300 members, so please come and join the fun. And to support the show, please head to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash UK True Crime, where you'll find over 33 bonus full-length episodes just for a couple of quid a month. These subscriptions help me producing the free content every week, and as one famous philosopher once said, you know it makes sense. God, I went a bit David Frost then, didn't I? Please don't forget to go to hellofresh.co.uk and use the discount code TRUECRIME to get a great deal. And for me, I'm off to carry on writing the story of Andy Baker to share with you next week. It's an amazing story with many parts hard to believe, and there will certainly be no doubt at the end of that episode whether or not a crime has taken place. So until then, take it easy, and of course, despite all the provocation from others, and I get it, please stay classy. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favourite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.